Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, after 16 years on the bench, Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton is ready for a new chapter. We'll talk all about it and a whole lot more. That's later in the program. And we'll hear how a small community clinic in Clarkston is serving residents during this pandemic. But now on to this. The Fulton County Board of Commissioners is currently in executive session as they consider the fate of Elections Director Richard Barron. Now, Commissioners could not come to a consensus last month on whether to accept or reject a vote by the county's Board of Elections, which was to fire Barron. And if a vote is taken during this broadcast, we'll have an update for you. Also on the agenda, the nomination of former Atlanta City Councilman Alex Wan to replace Mary Carol Cooney as chair of the county election board. She recently resigned. Now, in other news, George Governor Brian Kemp continues to speak out against President Joe Biden's proposed coronavirus relief package simply because he says George is not going to get enough money. Now, the Democratic-led stimulus package relief formula takes into account states' unemployment numbers as opposed to last time when it was population. The governor says this puts the state at a disadvantage because George's rate is below the national average. And Kemp appeared on the cable network CNBC earlier today. We've been winning down here from an economic standpoint, and now we're being made out to be a loser in the stimulus bill. And states like California, New York, Illinois, and others that haven't taken that measured approach to reopen their economy and have been losing economically is now a winner. With all due respect, they probably didn't even realize this. If you look at the way cities around the country are treated, it is equitable, but it's not equitable in regards to the states. And I I can only imagine after being on a lot of the governor's only calls with the Trump administration and Vice President Pence, if they had to treat Democrats this way, you know, the national media would be up in arms. And all we're asking for is to be treated the same, just like the previous stimulus packages. And hopefully there's a couple of, you know, moderate to conservative leaning Democrats in in the Senate that will push to have this changed. Now, the $1.9 trillion aid program is headed to the U.S. Senate this week after passing in the House over the weekend. Speaking of the coronavirus, Georgia confirmed more than 1,700 new cases just yesterday. And now the Georgia Department of Public Health has confirmed 821,482 total since last March. And the state also confirmed 67 deaths yesterday. This brings Georgia's total to 15,209 Georgians who've died due to the virus. 
And this week, as we've been saying, marks one year since the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed here in the state. Something I'll ask my next guest to reflect on. We'll also discuss how her small clinic has been serving Clarkson residents during the pandemic. So coming up in a moment, a conversation with Dr. Goshan Harji. She's the co-founder of the Clarkson Community Health Center. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It does continue, the fight to combat COVID-19. As mentioned, this week marks one year from when that those first cases were reported here in Georgia. And we know so much has happened over the last 12 months. We now have massive testing sites, and we also have three new vaccines. And back in April of last year, I spoke with Dr. Goshan Harji. She's the co-founder of the Clarkson Community Health Center. And we talked about how the no-cost clinic was helping the large population of resettled refugees, immigrants, and migrants who live in the city of Clarkston and other residents during the pandemic. And even though the clinic's doors were closed at the time, here's what she told me. So pre-corona, uh, we were open five days a week, and we had about 150 uh visits a week and now and now with the pandemic we've been closed for a month so we now graduated into a telemedicine operation so we have face-to-face on video which is of course HIPAA compliant and secure Mm -hmm. and we also do visits on the phone so right now while I'm interviewing we have uh, physician and nurse practitioner volunteers who are helping patients on telemedicine and now joining me with an update on the Clarkson Community Health Center and their COVID-19 response. We welcome back Dr. Goshan Harji. Dr. Harji, welcome back to the program. Thanks for taking the time. It's a delight to be with you again, Rose. Well, let's give an update. Uh, first of all, are your doors still closed? Are you all open? Or are you able to take people coming into the clinic? So this has uh, been quite a challenging uh, one year. There are no books you can read about how to manage free clinics in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But what we have done is that we have continued telemedicine. And during the pandemic, we offered uh, free COVID testing uh, on Sundays. And uh, we continued to have drive-through medical care so that patients could bring their blood sugar logs, their blood pressure logs, and we were able to tweak their medicine give them uh, diabetes medicine, give them blood pressure medicine. And so care has continued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have uh, continued telemedicine so that patients at no point have felt that they did not have care. Any idea when you all will make a decision to attempt to return to your normal mode of operation, Dr. Harji? Well, so it's interesting that it's been exactly a year. Sundays are very, this Sunday is our very first day uh, seeing patients. And we have a pilot uh, for two Sundays in a row uh, with our core volunteers who are already vaccinated and then be able to say, okay, we are ready. Uh, We have a team from the Emory University uh, School of Medicine and the Rollins School of Public Health Mm -hmm. who will help us with our contact tracing. And yes, so that I believe very strongly that within a month, we should be able to at least be open two days a week to start. How have you all been doing as a clinic in general this last 12 months here? 
in terms of being able to care for patients, uh, it's been a challenge, but we've continued to, to care for patients. In terms of funding, uh, many organizations and foundations have been very generous and have been sending us unsolicited uh, grants so that we can continue to have a very small crew of paid staff and some paid volunteers uh, that helped us with testing and some other projects that uh, we do on the side while we are experiencing the pandemic. So uh, though we uh, are challenged, but we have learned that uh, through these times, love, uh, inclusion, uh, compassion uh, has been at its best. Let me ask you this, um, in terms of folks who might have contracted the virus or sadly any deaths, what do you know about the community there in Clarkson in terms of the the numbers? So, uh, Rose, uh, while we were doing our COVID testing, we realized at some point that Clarkson was a very hot spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least 20 or 25 percent of our cases uh, that were coming for testing were showing positivity. So that uh, it was a challenge because many of these families that live in Clarkston live in very close quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live in multi-generational families so that quarantining can be difficult. Uh, many uh, travel in multiple numbers, uh, going to work together, coming back uh, together, uh, long drive. So that was uh, difficult for many patients. Uh, but we were able to help them deliver food to them, uh, provide medicines. We were checking on them 24 hours uh, until uh, they were able to return to work. So, yes, uh, we were actually able to give our patients very good care uh, when, they, uh, when they needed us most. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how the virus, of course, has disproportionately affected the black community, Hispanic communities. And I'm curious when you if you were able to assess the virus impact on the immigrant and refugee community. You talked about so many living in close quarters there. Uh, Now that we're into a a vaccination phase, what is the sentiment of the community there? Uh, Are folks are they hesitant? Are you having to. Advocate for people if they are eligible right now to to receive the vaccine the vaccines. So, uh, Rose, uh, and you hit it. You hit the nail on the head because vaccine hesitancy is high in our community, mm-hmm. and that's understandable. Uh, communities of uh, color, immigrants. Uh, well, first of all, uh, there is lack of information, lack of knowledge, and uh, so that. Uh, becomes a new issue, you're not only having to educate a community, but to educate them in the sensitivity that they are used to, in their language, understanding their culture, understanding their community. So there are several NGOs that we are collaborating with right now who are holding workshops with providers that speak multiple languages, uh, trying to create workshops, and then hopefully be able to uh, dissipate this knowledge and education uh, on live stream as well as on YouTube and, and Facebook uh, platforms. So that work is going on. And as you know, that um, there is clearly, uh, you know, disparity in terms of uh, 
vaccine delivery, Mm -hmm. as well as the hesitancy that makes it extremely difficult uh, to reach out uh, to communities of color and uh, immigrant families, Latino families. And you might be aware that there has been a COVID Health Equity Council Mm -hmm. that was just established recently, of which Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice of Morehouse School of Medicine is the chair of this council. And so I uh, await patiently um, about recommendations from this council about what resources they are able to provide us. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Goshan Harji. She's a co-founder of the Clarkston Community Health Center, and we're talking about how the health center is responding and continues to respond to COVID-19 roughly about one year into this pandemic. Uh, Dr. Harji, are you all, will you all become a site that can give the vaccines, the vaccinations? So uh, here is a uh, new subject. In other words, pre-clinics have been bunched up with their departments of health uh, in their region. So there has been, as such, uh, clearly no plan to have pre-clinics have any priority so that us being small communities are serving small numbers of people are bunched up with a large department. So we are not priority. But yes, we have already uh, satisfied all uh, the requirements. We are on a waiting list. And we requested the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of uh, the ease at which it can be stored uh, and that it's only a one-shot. And so that makes it a little bit more easy in our community. So we are expecting to be uh, a site, but we don't know when we'll be called up. Well, the Biden administration, and even here in Georgia, Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp and Kathleen Toomey, they have all said that it's important to have these partnerships, these community partnerships in terms of getting folks vaccinated, and particularly for communities where there is a low percentage of folks being vaccinated. So I would imagine that you all would be a a perfect facility to administer the vaccine. Well, we are excited. We're hoping that people are looking at us as a, as a, a place where we can actually have, a, have a, give a, our patients access to the vaccine. And we are very excited about that possibility. We are, we are actually very ready right now. Uh, we've got our refrigeration ready. We've got our facility ready. We've got our volunteers who themselves have been vaccinated. So we are Completely ready. We just need the vaccine. Mm. And Dr. Arji, I understand that you have received the vaccine, correct? I did. Actually, I went to Athens, Rose, uh, myself, my co-founder, and my uh, uh, manager. We all drove uh, to Athens to get our vaccines. Uh, and, you know, this was early on when they were just being offered. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went into a region where there was vaccine hesitancy, even within the healthcare community, so that we got lucky and stood in line and we were able to get them. How important is it for you then to, as a, as a community, not just a community leader, but a community health leader um, in, in Clarkston, for you to be able to do that and then also that possibly influence for those who might be a little hesitant to get the vaccine? You can share your story with them. Absolutely, Rose, and I take that matter very, very seriously because we know that vaccines work. And we, we cannot take this lightly because 
if there is hesitancy, look at what happened to polio. Seventy mm-hmm. years later, we still see cases of polio in areas where there is hesitancy about vaccine. And we really don't have 70 years to sit on this, mm. uh, on COVID. Uh, we need to get very, very aggressive. And uh, the White House and I uh, congratulate uh, President Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, for taking this matter very seriously. And as of now, we know that by end of May, we are told that every American who desires to have a vaccine should have access to one. So uh, given that our leadership is so committed, mm-hmm. I think it is upon us to uh, take advantage and get the vaccine. And as a, as a co-founder and as a physician in Clarkston, uh, I want to be an example that I've received the vaccine. I did just fine, and I'm protected. Telehealth can be very instrumental and for some conditions and from for some services, but obviously if for others it does not meet that, that normal level of service. What are you hearing from the community about what they're missing, obviously, uh, with the center having to have closed its doors for so long? Well, first of all, our population is very unique. Not everybody has access to Wi-Fi. And so uh, this type of platform where a physician can see their patient is not available to everybody. I would say maybe uh, 8 or 9% of our clientele actually have Wi-Fi where we can uh, see each other. And that's very important when you have physician-patient relationships. You have to be able to see your physician. You have to see each other's body language. And uh, that is very important. So uh, many of our patients only have cell phones, and so we are able to treat them and uh, be able to reach them through a secure phone line. So, yes, telemedicine has its limitations, but we realized during COVID that Mm -hmm. it has its uh, advantages. And even before COVID, Uh, There were um, many organizations that were pushing for telemedicine, Mm -hmm. but it was not getting approved. And suddenly, overnight, when the pandemic came, Medicare immediately jumped on it. We had coding and billing processes in place, and uh, things just went, uh, you know, smoothly. So I find uh, even I, from old school, was a little bit uh, unsure about telemedicine. But I'm actually liking it. And, of course, it has its, uh, it has its serious limitations. Mm-hmm. Because when you can't hear, you can't feel, mm-hmm. um, there are limitations. But, of course, it has its advantages in uh, many areas of healthcare. And, Dr. Harji, here's a question I've been asking so many people. Um, where do you hope we are as a nation, maybe by the end of the summer with this pandemic? Well, I'm trying to be very optimistic. Now, remember, as a country... We had the greatest number of cases per million people, Mm -hmm. and we recorded and continue to record the greatest number per million patients of death. Mm -hmm. But I am very hopeful, I remain optimistic, that if we continue the mask mandate, if we continue uh, social uh, distancing, and if we continue hand-washing, uh, and we pushed this vaccination issue, I feel very confident 
that we can put a huge dent by the fall of this year. And again, you all are, are slowly in phases going to try and return to some sense of normal operations. You said this Sunday? Sunday is our first day. That's our pilot, yes. And in one month, we should be ready to open two days a week, I'm hoping. And how's your staff doing, Dr. Harji? We've been very lucky. We had maybe three positive cases, and they've all done well. They were all young with no comorbid conditions, and so they all recovered and are doing well. And how are you doing in all of this? Um, I'm doing. I'm. <laughs> I've said that myself. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't blame you for that. I'm, I'm just doing. I'm just doing, and I'm so grateful to God that I am healthy and can continue to uh, take care of my family and uh, to continue to do what I uh, set out to do is take care of my patients at Clarkston Community Health Center. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Dr. Goshan Harji, the co-founder of the Clarkston Community Health Center. Thank you for taking the time, as always, and thank you for what you all are doing for the community over there. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you for shedding light on our work. We We love you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. I appreciate that. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. State lawmakers are hearing an earful earful from each other this week. Uh, Yes, regarding a lot of bills that will be argued on the chamber floors. That includes dozens of these Republican-backed voting-related measures. Now, HB 531 was already passed by the State House. Here's Republican Representative Barry Fleming. He's the bill's author. A bill designed to address and help with the ease of administration of our elections by our election officials, and to begin an effort to restore confidence in our election system by the voters of the state of Georgia. Now, Democrats view these measures as being, quote, restrictive and oppressive. Here's for President, his Representative Jasmine Clark speaking on the House floor this week. This bill is cutting off your nose to spite your face. Instead of reducing, restricting, and limiting our elections, we should be in this chamber working to make voting more accessible. Now, these proposed changes to Georgia's voting laws include ending early voting on Sundays, requiring ID for absentee voting, as well as ending no-excuse absentee voting, and placing limitations on ballot drop boxes. 
Well, Georgia, Georgia isn't the only state considering these sweeping changes to voting laws. Now, the Brennan Center for Justice reports more than 30 states throughout the nation have introduced, pre-filed, or carried over what the center labels as restrictive bills. Now, I had a conversation with Eliza Swearenbecker because she's part of a team tracking these various voting laws around the country. And she also serves as the counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center. And when we spoke, she says these current, this current large wave of Republicans looking back voting measures, it wasn't a surprise given the outcome this past November. Eliza, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, just let's open with this. Uh, what do you make of this? I guess we shouldn't be surprised that maybe based on the November outcome that we're seeing a lot of measures introduced throughout the state, throughout the nation here. Yes, that's right. Typically, after a general election, we do see from state lawmakers bills that relate to voting and elections and often bills that are attempting to restrict voting access. But this year is a year like no other after 2020, which saw historic voter turnout and particularly lots of usage of vote by mail. We are seeing now over 165 bills to restrict voting access in very harsh ways and particularly focusing on limiting vote by mail and other methods of voting beyond poll and place voting. And before we dig further into that, for our listeners who may not be aware, let's get a little bit more information about your your organization. I mean, you folks who may not be aware, you all identify as nonpartisan, correct? That's right. The Brennan Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit policy and law institute. And part of what we do is work on voting rights and elections, including reviewing state laws that are introduced and passed across the country. Any idea in just terms of percentage wise for our listeners so we can sort of set the stage here? How does this current legislative session compare in terms of other years right after a a big election in terms of the number? Are we looking at maybe three times, four times, 10 times the number of bills that have been introduced? The ones that y'all consider restrictive? Well, just as compared to last year, we are looking at well over four times the number of restrictive bills that were introduced last year. And that's as of February 8th, which is now a couple weeks ago. We are continuing to track new bills that are introduced. So we expect that number to grow even further. Now, how do you all track these various pieces of legislation? Do you have someone on on ground in every state or is it by region? We have some very talented members of our team who are scouring the uh, state legislative websites who are tracking these bills very, very closely and um, tracking well over 2,000 plus voting related bills now. Um, So credit to the team that works on this with me who are uh, keeping track of very, very many voting and elections bills. And the hundreds of bills on which we report are just those that either directly restrict voting access or expand voting access. I want to be clear. Did you say 2,000 measures in total? There are well over 2,000 measures that affect voting and elections in some way. Wow. Where do you see most of these new legislation being proposed? Is it southern states, out west, one state in particular that's ahead of, the, <laughs> ahead of everybody else here? Well, really, lawmakers across the country have shown concerted interest in democracy reform and election issues. But we, the interest in restricting voting access, we are seeing particularly in Arizona, Georgia, Texas, and New Hampshire. Um, so those are in some ways some, you know, Southern states 
Georgia, Arizona, and Texas are states with already large populations of voters of color and states that are diversifying more quickly relative to the rest of the country. So mm-hmm. that's one of the trends that we're seeing is that these restrictive measures are, are being introduced in states with more voters of color. Just got a question from a listener who wants to know more about how does your guest define restrictive measure? Is it a fair definition or is it leaning? I love our listeners. They have great questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that question. And of course, we are making a determination as to what restricts voting access. But we what we are assessing is whether the proposal will make it harder or easier for a voter, for an eligible voter to cast their ballot. And so we are not looking at the partisan nature of the bill. We're just considering whether the bill takes away barriers to voting for 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 citizens Mm -hmm. or if it puts more stumbling blocks in the way of voters in their path to the ballot box. And if you is it possible to even dissect those restrictive measures into several categories? I mean, for example, if we talk about voter ID or if we talk about absentee, which it obviously deals with the mail, have you all been able to break those down into categories as well? Yes, we do. And what we've seen this year is that the uh, biggest grouping of bills to restrict voter access are targeting mail voting, trying to make it harder for voters to obtain their mail ballots, to fill them out, to get those ballots counted. But we are also seeing quite a number of strict voter ID laws that would require voters to obtain photo ID and present that either in person when they're voting or name particularly when they're voting by mail. So there are quite a few bills in Georgia that would require photocopies Mm -hmm. of IDs to be submitted with absentee ballot applications and with the absentee ballots themselves, which is, of course, quite difficult because not everybody has a printer and a scanner sitting around at home, uh, let alone the difficulty of actually obtaining a photo photo ID in the first place, Mm -hmm. which which tends to disproportionately affect black and brown voters as well. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Eliza Swearing-Becker. She serves as counsel in the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we're talking about how state legislatures throughout the nation are proposing changes to various voting laws. Uh, Quick question for you as well. Are you all able to also see a trend in terms of Republican or Democrat-controlled state legislatures that are, are that have the most restrictive measures that are being proposed here? Well, what we do see is that the very vast majority of restrictive measures are being introduced by Republican state representatives. But there are also states that are Republican dominated where we are seeing very many expansive bills introduced, even if those bills may not have any good political shot of passing. Mm -hmm. And likewise, there are states that are traditionally progressive where we have um, Republicans introducing restrictive bills that similarly aren't likely to pass, um, but they are bringing them forward nonetheless. And there are also states where legislators are introducing what you all call expansive bills. So what what for our listeners, give a definition of what that would entail. That's right. It's not all bad news. There are also hundreds of expansive bills that have been introduced across the country, more than 500. And what we mean by expansive bills is that the bills would make it easier for voters to cast their ballots. And again, we are seeing a real focus on mail voting after the high usage of that method last year. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of bills that would permit all voters to vote by mail. In other words, eliminate the excuse requirement in states that still have it. 
or states that would expand access to or create the ability to use ballot drop boxes or allow voters to fix small defects in their mail ballots mm -hmm. so that their ballots can get counted even if they missed a technicality. So those are some of the areas that we're seeing legislators focus on in terms of expanding access. And there's also another category I want to get into because this looks at changing the way states electors vote in the Electoral College. So my first question is, before we get to how they're trying to do this, can they do this? I, does the Constitution, the, does the U.S. Constitution not prevent this? That's a little baffling for me. If they're going to change the way states electors vote in the Electoral College? The U.S. Constitution actually gives the authority to state legislatures and to states to determine how presidential electors are allocated. Mm -hmm. And that's why you do have a little bit of diversity right now. So, for example, the Nebraska legislature allocates their presidential electors in the Electoral College by district, which is why you can see in Nebraska one Electoral College voter being attributed to Joe Biden, while the others were attributed to Donald Trump. Having said that, most of the states have a winner-take-all electoral college method of allocation. Mm -hmm. um, but that is something that is technically within the power of states to alter. Are we seeing a lot of these, or this is maybe under 10 or 15? Or are there a lot of these measures uh, being considered in general assemblies throughout the nation? Well, there are about 10 bills that would alter the, the, the approach of their um, allocation in the ma manner that I just described, switching to a from a winner-take-all system to allocating the electoral voters by district. But there are more than a dozen states that are seeking to adopt the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, mm -hmm. which is an agreement among states under which, if a sufficient number of states agreed, they would just allocate their electoral college votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national popular vote. This is a, effectively a way to circumvent the electoral college and allow the national popular vote to determine who wins a presidential election. Yeah, that's a debate that's always interesting to watch. And Eliza, I just want to get your opinion to as someone who, who is involved in this, because one may argue, well, this is great because it maybe we'll cut down on voter fraud or election irregularities or others who are saying, no, this is just sort of backlash or one party is upset because they didn't win the, the, the president's the White House or what have you. Uh, do you all also do surveys and reports to try to get at the core of possibly why some of these measures are even being introduced, particularly in certain states where maybe the party that thought they were going to win didn't win? Talk about Georgia. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, well, what we do see is that state lawmakers are justifying some of these restrictive measures by claiming that there was voter fraud or concerns about voter fraud or election irregularity. But the fact is that voter fraud is extraordinarily rare, according to many, many academic studies, according to many courts that evaluated this just last year. Voter fraud is exceedingly rare. It is not a problem that plagued American elections. There were no considerable election irregularities last year. In fact, the general elections ran remarkably smoothly, given that voters were exercising their right to vote in the middle of a pandemic and turned out in record numbers. So these lies about voter fraud and election irregularities should not be used to justify restrictions on voter access. Do you think it's likely or maybe a better question would be based on in the past, especially coming off a, a, a presidential election, 
Is there a percentage of just how likely many of these legislations will pass and why or why why not in terms of what's happened in the past? It's hard to predict exactly how many of these bills will make it through the legislative session, particularly because there are many bills that have been introduced in various states that do the exact same thing. So they're sort of copycat iterations within the same state. Um, But it really depends on how the legislative sessions go. These bills will be amended. Um, The legislature will the legislatures will consider them. And it also depends on lawmakers hearing from their constituents. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you are a constituent and you do not like the kind of voting and election legislation that your representatives are advancing or supporting in committee, you can make that known. You can call your legislative office and tell them, I want no excuse absentee mail voting because it makes it much easier for me to cast my ballot and I'm not able to get to the polls on election day. So it's really important for for voters and constituents to know that the story's not over yet mm-hmm. and you have an opportunity to participate in democracy, not just on election day, but really every day by letting your representative know what you want from them. And we'll be paying attention. We probably need to bring you back after all this is said and done and we'll calculate and see, you know, exactly what was passed. Eliza Swearing Becker, she serves as a counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Eliza, good information. Thank you for the report. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last month, Chief Justice Harold Melton announced he would leave the Supreme Court of Georgia effective July 1st. Well, I actually had a conversation with him a couple of years ago. And today he joins me once again, virtually this time, however, to share why he's making this decision and to reflect on a lot more. And I know he just came out of the the, the floor. You're being honored, Chief Justice uh, Melton. I appreciate you taking the time. You almost forgot about me. What's up with that? Oh, I wasn't going to forget about you, but thank you for being flexible. I hated to even make it that close or, you know, <laughs> and to put the strain on you guys. But uh, the Senate was calling and I oh, felt obliged and I was honored. Of course, it's an honor to be with you again. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. You know where to begin, but I guess it's pretty obvious. Let's begin here. Why now? Why now this decision to to leave and, and pursue the next chapter? Well, that's a hard question to explain adequately, I I suppose. I I did feel that I wasn't going to serve until the maximum age of 75 on this court, Mm -hmm. which means you have to start thinking about when is a good time to make your transition over to something else. Uh, I did feel like I would, at at the longest, latest, serve until my time as chief was over. Uh, But then I started looking at some real practical pressing concerns in, in my household with three kids in college this time next year. Um, it, it's time to maybe uh, take advantage of some opportunities that are out there if I can and uh, make it a little bit easier for, for my family to do what do the kind of things we want to do. And but you know, I've loved every bit of what I've been able to do. 
Absolutely. And, you know, this comes at a time because two years ago when we spoke, if someone had said, you know what, the next time you have a conversation with Chief Justice Melton, you'll be talking about a pandemic. Not sure I would have wow. believed it. But what do you make of this public health crisis? Well, that's a that's another big question. It's been a year. We're coming up on the year anniversary from our first statewide judicial emergency order. We would never would have thought that it would have been a full year going into this. The experts generally talk in terms of 90 days. Mm -hmm. I am proud of our court system for being able to maintain critical functions and remain unified during this time. I do feel pressed about the need to have jury trials as soon as we can. There are people who are waiting jury trials. Mm -hmm. And that's very fundamental to what this country is about. And for that to have been on hold this substantial period of time is pretty heavy and should weigh heavy on all of us. Well, yeah, that is another aspect of this, which you just brought up, because the pandemic has delayed proceedings. And for those who are uh, incarcerated, who are awaiting trial, what does this pandemic reveal to you, though, about maybe increased funding for additional virtual technology or even to revamp how America's court systems work on a daily basis? Well, we have made a shift. Uh, within the court system during this time to virtual technology. A lot of the resources that have been poured into that. Our, our judges across the state and our sheriff's departments across the state have worked very hard to not hold people in jail who didn't need to be held in jail pending trial. Some of your larger counties, the jail population is the same or smaller than what it was going into the pandemic, mm -hmm. even though we haven't had jury trials for this long period of time. So they've been much more discerning. So from that perspective, then it means looking at the lessons that can be learned about how much of that we want to carry forward once the pandemic is over. And I do think we will we'll see some of those uh, lessons carry forward. Do you think judges and other court personnel should be included maybe in this next phase of those who are eligible for the vaccines? We certainly want it. Uh, we're, we're pushing for it. We're lobbying for it. Uh, you, you can make the case that right now, one of the fundamental needs of our society, uh, maybe not in terms of numbers, but in terms of fundamental who we are, is to have jury trials. Mm -hmm. And when you have jury trials, you're bringing people uh, close together in big rooms. We have, we have been able to dispense with the close coming together for 90% 90, 90 of what ha takes place in the court, courtroom. The one difference is when a client and, a, and an attorney are huddled together. And so uh, we, we do think vaccinations will be helpful, uh, not only from a practical standpoint, but even from a psychological standpoint. Mm -hmm. we're, we're making people get off their couch and come to a courthouse for, to serve on a jury. We need to make sure that they're safe. And we, we're, we've done all we can. But the idea of having vaccines is, a, 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 is an additional measure that's very important. I want to stick with something you just mentioned in terms of juries, because, as you know, voter rolls inform the, the jury rolls. And given the current flood of legislations I just talked about with the Brennan Center, uh, some that are labeled as restrictive and, and others as oppressive, uh, oppressive measures right now. Uh, but if you want to ensure that laws will allow more folks to register to vote and then to vote, this would also ensure more racially diverse juries, don't you think? Well, uh, you're getting into some of the policy issues about what is it, what 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 should be the criteria for getting on the voter roll, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know most of the legislation that I'm aware of 
deals with what happens once you're on the voter roll. Uh, I don't, you, you've heard better from your previous guests as to those other items. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the more, the more diversity you have, the more inclusiveness you have, uh, the better you have a, a chance to have a, a decision made by a jury of your peers, which mm -hmm. is what we're for overall. But wouldn't that lend itself to folks having confidence in the court system, having, you know, having confidence in that, OK, as a as a registered voter, you know, I'm also I could be considered, you know, for a jury trial. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. There's a correlation there, though, don't you think? Well, I hope that's the mindset. I hope people want to serve on jury, juries. Mm -hmm. uh, too much of the time uh, in, in our conversations with friends and family, we talk about jury services as something that we strive to get off of, like it's a timeshare presentation that we try to avoid. Mm -hmm. This is different than a timeshare presentation. This is something that determines the life and freedom and property rights of individuals, and it's fundamental to how we operate as a country. So as we look at these conversations that go out, uh, go on about our country, across the country, about whether justice is served in this particular instance compared to other instances, mm -hmm. it's hard to have those critical conversations and at the same time not be willing to serve on a jury. You know, about this time, two years ago when we spoke, there was a research that, that came out that I didn't get a chance to talk to you about, but it revealed that only one third of Americans have confidence in the courts and judiciary. And then also 70 percent view the courts favor the wealthy. 66 percent said the courts have become too political. And 50 percent said court decisions should reflect public opinion. Uh, what do you make of those results, particularly the one that only one third of Americans have confidence in the courts and judiciary? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I wish I could uh, assign homework to every citizen in the state of Georgia. Mm hmm. I would ask them to go into any courtroom just randomly and just sit there for half a day, hour or two, and then walk out and tell me what you see. Mm -hmm. Tell me what decisions you see that you disagree with, or even if you disagree with where you think the, the judge just completely got it wrong. Mm -hmm. I will, I, I will wager that in most instances, overwhelmingly, those citizens will look at what's going on in that courtroom and say, yeah, it's about right. And that even where the judge may have gone a different way or the jury went a different way, they would see how the judge or jury went that direction. If there is any reform that's needed in any area of our court system, what stands out to you, Chief Justice Milton? Well, there's always need to do better. I don't I'm, I'm a big defender of our criminal justice system, but I never want to say we don't need to keep looking at it and figuring out what can be done better. Uh, there are a number of ways I, I think the, the system could be improved, many of which are, aren't what we talk about in the general atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, I, even before the pandemic, I had concerns about the length of time people stay in jail waiting trial. Uh, one, of the, one of the negative consequences of that is that that can be leveraged for somebody to plead guilty to an offense that they may not uh, be guilty of or may not be fully guilty of. There may be a lesser included offense that's the more appropriate offense, but mm -hmm. sit in jail for a long time and then offers made, hey, you can get out with time served if you only if you plead to this and, and, and then you can go home. That's not the kind of uh, delivery of criminal justice that we want. We mm -hmm. want it to be more based on the facts and not on how long you stayed in jail. So that's a that's a big issue. 
Um, and then one real on the ground kind of uh, innovation that's in the works that that can have real huge impact is just all the arrests that happen because of failure to appear in court. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just the notices aren't getting read or opened or handled the right way. So the traditional way of courts notifying parties of court dates are through mail, through the mail. Mm-hmm. mail notices. Uh, most of the people that are interacting with our, our court system are young people. Young people don't read mail the way we used to. And young people move around. Mm-hmm. So last year's address is not necessarily this year's address. What young people do read are text messages. Yes, they do. <laughs> and so just catching up with that reality could make a big difference, I think, in how we just inform people of, uh, of the court dates. And we've, we've already seen that where that is done, the attendance rates, the appearance rates have gone up and you're not arresting people just because they weren't there. You know, Chief Justice Melton, you have a you have a long track record of community service in, in many communities, particularly communities of color or what you might call vulnerable communities. That has been very important to you. That I imagine will continue no matter what that next chapter is, huh? I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, it, it's where my heart is. Uh, I, I believe that's where real change happens. I believe it happens one life at a time one household at a time, one neighborhood at a time. We tend to want to think of wide sweeping global initiatives. Those are hard to find. If you can find one or two things that will happen that could result in a a broad sweeping impact, I'd love it. But until then, let's really be hands-on, one-on-one, one-on-three. I do think I will always be involved. At least I sure do hope so. When you reflect on why you chose this path, um, what are the highlights? of this journey so far? Well, oddly enough, this pandemic crisis is a highlight. Um, It has been a source of pride to be able to work so constructively with people who I've grown to respect and admire, hardworking public servants. You know, if you ever work in a restaurant, uh, I always ask people, would you eat there? And when because, you know, you, you get to look behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I've had a chance to look behind the scenes of our judiciary. And I've seen people all across the state and in the kitchen. And they're doing it the right way. And they're wanting to do it the right way. So I'm, I'm proud to have been able to work with them and to see them and grow with them and develop a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood with these, these people. So it is a highlight, even though it's been difficult. Any disappointments or unresolved challenges that you wanted to meet head on? Oh, we've got unresolved challenges. The, you know, the uh, digging out of this backlog is something that we should never, ever uh, take lightly. And the practical impact of what it means to those people who are sitting in jail uh, waiting for a chance to have their, their charges addressed by a jury of the peers, we should never take that lightly. And, uh, you know, I hope I haven't missed any opportunities to be more effective in that area but it's something that does weigh on us heavily. And when you reflect on what happened at the nation's capital on January 6th, um, Chief Justice Melton and folks, and I asked this question to our listeners about, you know, their their faith in democracy. Um, as you watched all of that unfold, what went through your mind and where we are now as a nation? 
Sure. I, I am always, I shouldn't say always, I try to be optimistic. I will tell you that when I watched what was happening, I had a tendency like we, like many of us did to, to be concerned and somewhat doubtful. Um, and then I took a step back and had the perspective of time and looked at and tried to put things in a historical perspective. And what I realized was you know, all our great strides towards living up to the dream and promise of our nation mm-hmm. have been occasioned by some degree of ugliness. And this was no exception. Uh, so in this moment of time, in the midst of it, yes, it looks pretty daunting. But I will say that uh, if we galvanize and focus on our core principles that really matter, and if we do the work in response and use this as energy, we can and have ended up better than before. And I have every reason to believe that with the kinds of conversations that we're having, we, we can't end up better than before if we do the work. Speaking of work, you you say you're not sure about that next chapter. I'm going to just throw some things out there. You just say, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, joining a nice big law firm. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, teaching at a local law school here in Georgia somewhere. All that's very possible. <laughs> um, going on a game show, Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, not Jeopardy. It has to be something like uh, where you eat things that nobody else wants to eat. <laughs> Um, along this journey, your family has been so important to you. Um, what do you want folks to know about how important they've been to you, your wife, your, your family? This well, is part of the conversation where you, you, you know, you need to thank your wife. You know that, right? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've, I've been told that there's certain, certain, certain audiences you don't ever go in front of without talking about your mom or your wife. There you go. So, um, this is all about them. Uh, my, my wife's biggest concern is that whatever I do next, she wants me to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be able to serve her and, and, and the kids. We have served our kids together. One of the reasons why we are where we are financially mm-hmm. is because we don't say no to them on anything that we want to provide. <laughs> right. That's what that is for. And we're in this country. And so uh, I'm thankful to my wife for for. Being the mom and being the wife that she's been, and uh, look forward to being able to serve them even more. All right. Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton, thank you so much for taking the time on this extended edition of Closer Look. We really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Come on back when, when that next chapter begins. Look forward to being with you again. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m., as well as our podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.